בשם השם נעשה ונצליח. שיעור תורה, wonderful to be back here in Aventura, Breslov Center, ברוך השם. We are uh, here on um, continuing our Musar series that ברוך השם has helped me do תשובה more than anything else, uh, personally. Um, if you don't do תשובה after watching the series, usually because you don't have the volume on. So you have to just turn the volume on. That'll help you. But if you have the volume on, and you still didn't do tshuva, then you have to check, check your ears. Because maybe you're deaf. But other than that, anyone that watches this series, Mamash, from beginning to end, uh, it, it has, has to do some level of tshuva. Uh, because it's simply the truth, um, and in a, the most clear way. And it has nothing to do with me. It just simply, I'm just being the vessel. It's just simply you, if you read and understand what the Avot HaKtoshim were saying, what our sages were saying, what Hashem Yitbarach is saying, uh, there's no way to hide. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to find an excuse to justify our sins. So today we are up to uh, 101 in the series, but it's actually a continuation of the Mishnah that uh, we started uh, in uh, Shur number 100. I mean, technically, in the Nusach that I have here, uh, the, 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 it's actually a separate Mishnah. It's Yud Aleph instead of Yud. It's 11 instead of, uh, it's 5.11 instead of 5.10, meaning it's a new Mishnah. But actually, according to uh, many of the other uh, traditions, this is all part of the same Mishnah. Most likely, based on the wealth of information that's here, it's very likely that there's going to be at least another, you know, one shiur after this to continue the same Mishnah, maybe two more. And uh, it seems like many of the Mishnayot from uh, where we're at all the way until the end of Pirkei uh, Avot are going to be multi-lecture Mishnayot because each one is huge. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, technically you could do a shiur for an entire year for just one Mishnah. That's how significant each one of them is. But Baruch Hashem, as you can see, each one of the shiurim is very different. Uh, and uh, it helps us. It helps us uh, wake up in a different way every, every shiur. Now, the uh, trips, Baruch Hashem, that we had in New York and also in California, Baruch Hashem, were very, very successful. A lot of people got a wake-up call. Some people woke up out of their slumber because they weren't keeping anything. Some people woke up out of their slumber because they thought they were keeping everything but realized they're not even keeping half of what they thought they're keeping. Um, the conclusion that everyone arrives to is that everyone must do tshuva. Everyone must do tshuva. Religious, not religious, Hasidish, Litvish, Yeshivish, the rabbi, the student, the mother, the father. Everybody has to do tshuva. The goyim. Everybody has to do tshuva for something. Some more, some less. But the reality is, Rabotai, is that when you learn serious musar, you see there's no way to hide. There's simply nowhere to hide that's going to help you on Yom Adin, other than tshuva. And that's what the Gemara says time after time. That's what the five books of Moses say time after time. That's what the Avot HaKtoshim is saying time after time. There's nowhere to hide. And the shiur that we started in uh, 100 was measure for measure. The secret behind measure for measure. And this continues. 
So for all of those politically correct rabbis, this shiur is especially for you and for your keilot. And the reason why is because this shiur and all of these shiurim about measure for measure eliminates political correctness. Eliminates any of those thoughts forever. And the reason why is because this is basic level Judaism. This is not sod, this is not secret. This is not a uh, some mystical teaching in the Zohar that some people like to dispute as if somebody else wrote it instead of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Uh, you know, it's not uh, some teachings that's unacceptable by anyone in the world in history. Even the Christians and the Arabs would accept this. Let alone the Jews. Because it's common sense. The only ones that don't accept it are people that don't want to accept Judaism for what it really is. They want to make it into something else. Sometimes they call themselves reform. Sometimes they call themselves conservative. Sometimes open orthodox. Sometimes orthodox. And the reason why is because what the sages are explaining here in this Mishnah is that not only is there a din and there's a dayan, there's a judgment and there's a judge, but there's actually specific things that happen in the world when we sin. This is the part that no one likes to talk about. Now, we're not going to talk about Gainom again because we already had enough shirim about it. But this is actually, this measure for measure, Mishnah, is specifically talking about what Hashem does, how He runs His world. How Hashem runs the world after the sin. What does He do? Does He just wait for you around the corner, wait for the sinner around the corner, let him live his 70, 80, 120 years, and then once he gets up there, he rips him apart to 50 million pieces? Or something happens here? Is he just sitting there quietly? Or something happens in this world? Is the hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis and depressions and economic downfalls and bankruptcies, is that just something that's part of life where it just happens because of bad luck and bad fortune and bad this and bad that? Or is there a reason for it? Is there a hand that's controlling all of these different things? And this Mishnah specifically tells you when this happens, this happens. There's a cause, there's an effect. There's a cause, there's an effect. And it's literal. Now, of course, there's much more meaning behind the literal, which we'll go into. But nonetheless, it never goes away from the pshat. It never goes away from the literal. If the literal says Yaakov went down to Egypt with 70 souls and we can understand many, many things from it, it never changes that there were still 70 souls that came down to Egypt. It's never more. It's never 75 like the Christians say. It's never, he didn't go there, was just kidding. It's never, you know, it's never something like that. It's always the same, but there could be other things that we can learn from it. Same concept here. It's this, and there's obviously much more. So you have a question? Yeah. No, you just raise your hand just to... Oh. Oh, to give a chat. Yeah, sure. Why not? Same price, the water? So, now, Rabotai Karim, we're going to go over briefly the first Mishnah that we read last week, briefly, and then continue with where we're at. Where we're at. And then, Bezot Hashem, there's a lot of interesting things. Mamash, I was, I was enjoying myself. Learning for this you, Ashrechem. We got this you already for you. So Bashem Hashem Nasev and Asliach. So it says Shiva Mine Puaniot Bain Laolam Al Shiva Gufe Avera. 
It says seven types of punishments come to the world for seven kinds of transgressions. If some people tithe, meaning people give 10% of their income, and others do not, a famine is caused by the lack of by lack of rain ensues. Some go hungry and some are satisfied. So in so many words, if only some people give 10% of their income, this causes parts of the world to have famine as a result of lack of rain. And this is actually how you see the world today. It's very simple to prove this. You see that there's always parts of the world in every single year, in every single economy, it's going to be what? In every single economy, in every single part of the world, there's always a part of the world that's dealing with lack of rain. Always. I remember when I was in Boca Raton, we lived there for a couple of years. It literally seemed like it rained every day. I thought the Noah was going to show up to my house every day. But there's other parts of Florida, it doesn't rain. It doesn't rain. Other parts of America, it doesn't rain simply. And I know at the same time I moved to, uh, to Boca Raton, the state of California announced that if they don't have a massive amount of rain that year, they were literally going to run out of water. Uh, in major news at the time. Why? Hashem says to the Chachamim, Chachamim are telling us, if people give 10% of their income, this will not happen. But if only some people give, this happens. Why? You showed that you're cheap with your panasa as if it's yours. I'll be cheap with mine too. To show you there's a cause and an effect to everything. There's obviously more to it that we went over last year. The next thing is it says, if all decided not to tithe, if everybody decided there's no more 10%, we don't want to give anything. Let the poor, let the scholars, let the widows and the orphans suffer. The heck with them. Let them go get jobs. Oh, they don't have a job? Okay, so survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. If all decided not to give maser, if all decided not to give a tithe, a general famine is caused by armed bands. And drought ensues, meaning the drought that already started, that's only small parts of different parts of the world, now becomes massive. Now it starts covering large parts of the country and even the world. If they also decided not to separate chala, a famine caused by fatal droughts ensues. So now, not only are they cheap with their money, they're even cheap with a simple mitzvah like a fashat chala. If you're making five pounds of, uh, of bread yourself, you're making yourself challah for, for Shabbat, which is an enormous mitzvah that you should do as often as you can. But make sure you don't waste the bread, meaning you, if you, all the bread you're going to have, if, you, uh, if you're not going to eat all of it, either give it away or freeze it. Don't uh, throw it out every because that's about, about the shrit. Not allowed to just throw things away. So you're going to make, most families, you're not going to need five pounds of bread. So you're going to use, I don't know, a few challahs, you know, a couple for, for, for Friday, a couple of for, for, for Shabbat, for Saturday, uh, and you're going to have extras out of five pounds. You're usually going to have extras, unless you have a lot of guests. Those extras you can either freeze and use them the next week, or even during the week, or you can give them away. You give them away. Like one of my students used to give me challah. doesn't give me anymore. He doesn't like me anymore. What could I do? No, actually he likes me. He's in the shiur today. He just lives far away. But anyway, all kidding aside, 
a uh, the, the challah bread that his wife was making was absolutely delicious, but it was simple. It was extra. The same thing when we used to have the you know anytime we had extra time to make uh, bread. My wife has time to make bread. We try to give some away, or we we keep if we don't like anybody. So now, if if the nation as a whole gets to such an extent that they're not even willing to do this mitzvah, what does it mean do this mitzvah? Because if you have five pounds of bread. It, the afrashat chala, what's called a chala, is tiny. It's a tiny portion, in essence, like a handful of dough that you pretty much burn, burn to, uh, to, to, to nothing. That's it. Meaning, the rest of it you eat, this little tiny portion, you don't have to do anything with. You don't do anything with. You don't eat it, nothing. In the days of the Kohanim, uh, something different would happen. But nonetheless, the point is, it's such a small, tiny, easy mitzvah, you're not even willing to do that because you're, you're scared maybe it's a, you know, you don't want to waste that extra, you want it for yourself, whatever, it's whatever craziness the Yetzirah convinces us to do. It says, to that extent, you remember that drought and uh, all the things that happened before? Now it gets to the point where it's at a level of causing death, Hashem Rechem. Similar stories to what you hear of what's happening in different parts of Africa and uh, other parts of the world. You see people much dying in the streets. Venezuela, Shemachem. People much are going through garbages like dogs because they're ashamed their wicked government. Amash torturing people. They destroyed the economy, destroyed the currency, and now they're forcing people to just mamash, like live like animals. People like, uh, I don't know how they survive. It's, it's unbelievable. I saw a few stories on it, I started crying. Doesn't matter, Jew is not Jewish. It's just you see people like this. If you see people like how much they're suffering, if you're not crying, you're not human. And why? Because of the greed of the few that have some power. Because of the greed of the few that actually have the weapons. But it's not the shame that people will have enough courage to revolt against them very soon, throw them out of government, kill all of them, and replace them with something decent. But uh, they need some help. They need some help from the United States. They need some help from somebody with some power. I, I can't believe that the U.S. is just sitting quiet. They're worrying about uh, you know so many other things, like building a, a wall uh, against the, the, the Mexicans, which is the number one employee in America, is the Mexican. They want to build a wall to, to not have him come on. It's, a, it's a, such a silly, racist, nonsensical thing. But... The point is, what we should do, you have a next-door neighbor that's starving, go take care of it. Throw a couple of tanks over there, a few choppers, one uh, plane, you finish the whole battle. They don't have anything over there. What's the problem is politics. Why? If you go over there, you have to deal with some other enemies, bigger enemies. That's the problem. So it's not ever, it's not ever as easy. Point being is that at this stage when people are starving in the streets, Mamasha, eating like from garbage pails, and one story I heard, that there was a husband and wife, they had a son, and they have to decide which one of the parents eats every night. Because they only have enough for one, both of them work. Both work, but they have only enough money for only one parent to eat every night. I mean, stories like this, you just you just say to yourself, Hashem Hashem. but what's the reality here? This is all from Shemaim. There's no complaints to God. It's complaints to ourselves. Why? Because this is caused by us. Me, you, everybody. If we did the right thing, such things wouldn't happen. If we learn enough Torah, someone in Venezuela wouldn't starve. Someone in Israel would be able to say Kriyat Shema. Someone over there would be okay. Why? Because your actions affect the world. When something bad's happening around the world, it's our fault. Don't let it fool. Don't, don't, 
let what I initially said fool you, thinking that it's just the leaders, or it's just the weapons, or it's just the economy. It's all like how Hashem makes it look realistic. In reality, it's our fault. It's our fault. So, here we already learned that Hashem is not a care bear Hashem. He's not a care bear God. He says, you do something, I react. So the next, the Mishnah continues, and it says the following: Dever ba laolam al mitot ha'amurot b'Torah shelo nimseru lebedin v'al perot shviit cherev ba laolam al inui adin v'al ivut adin v'al amorim b'Torah shelo ke'alacha chayar ha'ba laolam al shvuat shav v'al chilu l'Shem galut ba laolam. על עובדי עבודה זרה ועל גילוי הערויות ועל שפיכות דמים ועל שמיטת הארץ. So it says, pestilence comes to the world for death penalties that are prescribed by the Torah that were not carried out by the court. Somebody violated Shabbat, and the Sanhedrin says, nah, just let it go. We violated Shabbat, it's death penalty. Everybody's witnesses, everything, it's supposed to death penalty. No, no, let it go. Somebody murdered, and uh, they say, ah, let him go, let him go. What do you mean let him go? He's a murderer, it's motumat, he kills, he has to be killed. They let it go. The court lets it go. Pestilence comes, to the entire world has to suffer. And... For illegal use of fruits of the Shemitah, of the sabbatical year, the seventh year, which we'll go into why, why it even has anything to do with it. Most likely the first two are the only things, the first one is the only thing we're going to go over today, but I'll still continue the rest of Mishnah. The sword, meaning a war, comes to the world for delay of justice, for the perversion of justice, and for rendering decisions contrary to halakha. It's a clear thing that happens in court. The guy is a murderer. They say, oh, you know, you have to kill him now. No, no, let's wait till uh, next year. Why next year? Let's just see what happens. What, nothing's going to happen. You already killed the guy. You have to kill him. Death penalty. If the, the penalty is the same day of judgment according to Judaism. There's no, he's going to stay in jail and rot there for 20 years until we finally put him in the electric chair. There's no such thing in, in Judaism. If he's a death penalty, if there's any penalty, the penalty is immediate. We don't let them think about when it's going to happen because it's actually technically another form of suffering. It's another form of suffering because the guy doesn't know when he's going to die. You're giving them false hope. Delay of justice creates war. What else? Perversion of justice. You've changed the law according to your liking. Unfortunately, this happens every single day by a lot of people with beards. And for rendering decisions contrary to halacha. This is like somebody that has a really long beard and payas that tells people you should smoke marijuana because he does and he likes it. And especially if it helps you feel holier and, and learn Torah. If this guy, Dror Kasuta, tells you to do it, then this is exactly the sin he's fulfilling. 
He's saying go smoke marijuana because it helps you feel higher spiritually. He also tells you to uh, take your wife to the uh, mixed beach if it creates shlombait and drive on Shabbat in order to uh, fulfill your wife's wishes if, uh, if, uh, if, if that creates shlombait and all types of nonsense that he creates. So for anyone that wonders where does it say in the Torah that all of these things are outright sins, right here, what do you mean by sin? Sins that you and me are suffering for. The nonsense that people like him say, or this other idiot, uh, Shmuli Boteach, that just wrote a book with a porno star, one of the most famous pornography, disgusting behavior according to the Torah, woman in history of mankind, he just wrote a book, co-authored a book with a so-called rabbi. I mean, it, 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 I don't know. I think the people from, the, from that are in Gainom right now, from Sodom and Gomorrah, are saying, come on. God, they're much worse than us. Come on, look at this guy. We didn't even do that. The, the generation of Noah are looking at us. Come on, God. Okay, the guy went with a donkey, but look what this guy did. He calls himself a rabbi. At least we didn't call ourselves rabbis. This is, the, this is where we're at, Rabotai. Rabotai, we're in such a confused generation. You don't know what to know. You don't know what's right. You don't know what's left. You don't know anything anymore because the so-called leaders, the so-called scholars, the so-called famous scholars, some of them are like outright, like Mamash, like Nebuchadnezzar himself. If you have no idea. Where did this guy come from? Where? Who gave you the permission to say such things, to do such things, and no one says anything. No one says, everything's quiet, like little, like mimes. Everybody, all of a sudden, no one knows how to talk. No one knows how to talk. A woman wants to become a rabbi, an orthodox rabbi. 5,000 people create uh, protests, even though technically in the Torah, we even had a judge that was a, a woman. We actually had a judge that was a woman, according to the Torah. It's still not the appropriate position for a woman, but nonetheless, it's nowhere near the level of awfulness in Chilul Hashem as an orthodox rabbi writing a book with a porno star, uh, an orthodox rabbi partnering with a Christian institution, I mean, or another orthodox rabbi that is telling people, go smoke marijuana and learn Torah after it, like, this is just stuff. You don't even have to be religious. You don't even have to be Jewish to realize there's something wrong here. There's some, something wrong in the water. God bless you guys, but come on. No one says nothing. This is like a clip of its own. It's Look, breaking news. What breaking news? Already old news. Just no one says anything. This Boteach guy has been causing mayhem in Judaism for years already. Very few speak against it. I don't even know how you accept him inside your shul. To let this guy into a shul, into a shul, I don't know how you're allowed to. Somebody that wrote such books, he calls himself America's rabbi. Esav's rabbi, maybe. So here, Rabotai, the Mishnah specifically talks about these people. You are rendering decisions that are contrary to Allah. You're saying things that are, you're changing the Allah. You just decide this is a new Allah. You decide this is allowed all of a sudden. Go do this. Go. Who said it's allowed? 
You decided to, that's it. You, you made a new law. You have a problem. You have a serious, serious problem. Next, it says, wild beasts come upon the world for vain oaths and desecration of Hashem's name. Wild beast in today's world also means car accidents and things of that nature. Building crashes, September 11th, stuff like that. That comes from people not being able to keep their word. They make, they make uh, you know, swears. Oh, I swear, I'll give, it to, I'll give you the money on Tuesday. I swear, I swear, I'll give you the money on Tuesday. Or even, I'll just give you the money on Tuesday. And you don't give the money? That's a swear. Oh, I'm going to come tomorrow. I'm going to come to shul tomorrow. And you don't come? It's a problem. You, if you're not going to do it, if you know for sure you're not going to do something, don't lie to make f- people feel better. You're only causing problems. Like people think that lying to people temporarily, and like saying, no, no, I'll be there tomorrow, and you know for sure you're not going to be there. Oh, no, no, I'm coming tonight. And you know for sure you have a different appointment. You're not coming. But you feel embarrassed to tell them. Because you don't know. They put you on the spot. The guy, you coming to the show? Yeah, for sure. What time? Nine. I'll be there. I'll be there at 8.59. And you already know that at 8.30, you're already going to be three hours away. There's no chance for you to come. But you say, no, no, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Like some people text me always, always like a half hour before the shiur. Wait, can you text me the address of the shiur? It's the same place every Tuesday. God bless you. Come on. It's the same place every Tuesday. Okay, you send me? Okay, oh, so I send him a text. I don't even bother, rebuke nothing. Come to the shiur. And I sometimes send a message. I say to them, even if you come two hours late, the shiur is usually three hours. You're still going to get an hour of Torah. Come. Come, I don't care. Be it two hours late. No, I don't care. It doesn't make a difference. Just come. Learn some Torah. Why? Because I know that if he's not learning Torah here, he's not learning. If she's not learning here, she's not learning. That's a reality. So I don't care if you're late, not late. Obviously, I'd love for everyone to be on time. Because there's more Torah in the world and there's more people learning it. But the point is, is that if you know for sure you're not coming, don't say I'm coming. If you know for sure that you can't pay the money back, don't say I'm going to pay the money back. Don't borrow in the first place. Or if you know you can't pay back at a specific date, don't say I'm going to do it. Or say, oh, Be'ezat Hashem. What Be'ezat Hashem? You lied on the spot. You know you don't have it. You know you can't pay it back. Why? Why you shouldn't say it? Because it says, sheker You're supposed to run away. Stay away from a lie. Everything else in the Torah, it says you shouldn't do. You shouldn't drive on Shabbat. You shouldn't eat non-kosher. You shouldn't, uh, you know, touch your wife when she's nida, and so on and so forth. But with sheker, with lies, it says midvar sheker tirchak. With lies, it says stay away from them. Like don't even not forget about not doing them. Stay away. Stay as far away from sheker as you can possibly be. Why? Because sheker is the exact opposite of the signature of Hashem. Hashem's chotemet, Hashem's signature is emet. Emit, that's his signature. Hashem signs his name, Emit. That's his name. Sheker is lies. Emit means truth. Sheker means lies, meaning that when you lie, it's literally the opposite of God. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. It's like Christianity and Judaism. Opposite. One is the truth, which is Judaism. The other one is idolatry. It's, it's, it's complete opposites. So when you are saying all types of promises, you should know that aside from making a sin that affects you, 
It also affects the world, creates accidents in the world, creates problems. Somebody fell off of a mountain. He climbed mountains for 20 years safely and soundly and enjoyed it. All of a sudden, the guy falls off of a mountain and dies. You're like, oh, yeah, Chaval, Misken, he was a nice Jewish guy. Yeah, it's probably your fault. Why? You probably lied that day, or you lied three weeks beforehand. What do you think? The world was just going to continue with your lie? Your actions, your actions have consequences. This is why Musar, you can't not do tshuva if you learn Musar. Why? Because you're feeling like, I have to fix something. I'm, 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 I have something here, something. Three hours he spoke, I have something. Something affects me here. No one is innocent. Everybody has something here. I did this, I did this. Okay, I fixed it. Maybe I didn't lie every day of my life, but three weeks ago, I said I was going to come, and I really didn't mean I didn't want to come. I wasn't planning on coming. I didn't come. And I think it was a big deal because I was trying to make them feel good. I thought I was doing the mitzvah by making them feel good, by saying I'm going to come. And I figured that by the time they realized I'm not coming, there's already two, three hundred people in the place, and they wouldn't mind that I didn't come. It really didn't affect them. Even though what you're saying is logical and rational and technically true, still not allowed to do it. Still not allowed to do it. So if you're going to say something, if something is going to leave your mouth, Make sure you can stand for it. Also, Chilul Hashem. Chilul Hashem, when a rabbi, that's especially a big rabbi, like a Dayan, invites a Christian missionary to speak at an Orthodox shul or anywhere, aside from a toilet, that is the definition of Chilul Hashem. When a community hides the child-molesting teachers, whether they're rabbis or otherwise, because they're afraid the community is going to get a bad name, that's Chilul Hashem. For that, Rabotai, wild beasts come to the world. Accidents. You see a bunch of kids getting overdosing on drugs and dying. Some guy running into uh, 15 different people yesterday in Canada. Another psychopath that works for FedEx stabbed another Jew. What do you think? These are accidents? Like Hashem just turned off. He just, oh, he did. He got away from me, that guy. What do you think? Somebody did something without Hashem signing off? Who in their right mind actually thinks that anything in the world happens without Hashem saying, yeah, go do this, go do this, go do this, go do this, go do this. When you say, I have emunah, it's not just emunah that your bank account will continue growing. It's not just emunah that one day you're going to find a wife or a husband. It's not just emunah that uh, the, the illness is going to go away. Emunah also means that the same God you believe in that's going to help you with marriage, with food, with this, is the same, very same God that's responsible for everything. If for a single second you think that anything in the world happens without Hashem signing off on it, you have serious emunah problems. Everything, everything, Hashem signs off on. Everything. How? That's why you're Hashem and not us. So when somebody does things that's against it, it's Chilul Hashem. Exile comes to the world for idolatry, for immorality, for bloodshed, and for working the earth during the sabbatical year. Why do you think we're all in America, Rabotai? Why do you think there's just as many Jews outside of, of Israel as there is in Israel? Why? 
but it's an accident. Hashem says in the book of Deuteronomy, I'm going to send you to the four corners of the world. Why? Because you're idol worshippers, including myself. You're immoral. You shed blood. You, uh, meaning, uh, which is sex crimes, uh, wasting seed, and you worked in a sabbatical year. All of these crimes we are guilty of at some point. I'm not saying right now. Could be in, uh, a year ago, 10 years ago, previous Gilgul. The point is, Rabotai, we're not here as a happenstance. It didn't just happen that you were born in America or in Venezuela or in Argentina or, and you're not in Eretz Israel. It didn't just happen. Something happened in order to cause it. Now, this is not a shiur to make you feel bad about yourself. This is a shiur for us to get a reality check that we need to do tshuva. We have, we're here because we have to do tshuva for something. What? We'll find out today. That's the point. But just understand that the difficulties you're experiencing, whatever they may be, or the difficulties in the world that everyone's experiencing, whatever they may be, there's a reason for them. The Torah, as I was telling the, uh, the, the Avrechim, and also some other people that came to the Shurim in Los Angeles, at Young Israel, if anyone tells you that the Torah and doing tshuva and becoming really religious and learning Torah every day and every night is going to fix all of your problems to the point where you don't have any more problems, they're lying to you. They're lying to you. There's no such thing as no problems. Everyone has problems. That's life. Your life is supposed to be full of problems. That's how Hashem builds you up spiritually. That's how Hashem builds you up in every aspect to become what you can be through problems. People generally don't grow through good things. They grow through difficulty. You become more muscular by lifting more weights. You become you know, more wise by learning more, more books, more and more information. More and more information is more and more sacrifice of doing other things that you want to do. The point is, the more pressure you put on someone, the more likely they are to become a diamond. The Torah is not there to fix all of your problems. It will fix some of them. It will create others. What the Torah is there for is to give you a reason. To give you a reason for every single one of your problems. Every single thing. Health issue, hair issue, breathing issue, understanding issue, vision, money, uh, wife, husband, children, anything. Even if you have a little earache, there's a reason for it. Everything has a reason for it. Is a rabbi, Rabbi Armoni, tzaddik, very uh, mekubal also, and uh, he is biki. He's an expert in identifying which sin you've made in order to get which physical ailment you have in your body. People that are sick, they have different physical ailments. Sometimes the doctors don't know what it is. Most of the time they don't know what it is, but they pretend they do. And the point is, is that he'll tell you. You tell him, oh, I have this, this, and this. He'll tell you two things. One, if you want to know and you're at that level. One, which sin you made that caused that specific ailment. Uh, and two, uh, if there's something you can do about it. And it'll, it'll give you uh, different uh, you know, natural herbs you can go buy on your own. You don't have to necessarily buy from him. He's not a uh, vitamin store. But uh, he'll tell you what to buy, what to do, how much to take, and so on. He's an expert. 
both in Torah and also in, in natural uh, medicine. Uh, and definitely a big Tamit Chacham. The point is, is that there is a reason for everything. Nothing just happens. Nothing just happens. So the reason why we are in the exile is because of the idol worship that's in the world, the immorality that's in the world, the uh, um, sex crimes, the modesty, the bloodshed is not only murder but also wasting seed and also by people not honoring the Shemitah. So this is technically the end of this specific Mishnah and now we're going to go into the details of at least the first couple of reasons. Any questions so far? Ken. Ken. Oh, it really happened? Oh, okay. I just gave you an example. I, I, I didn't really know. No, I didn't know that somebody just died. Seat Nishmaya. Baruch Hashem. Why does he need to do it? I mean, people do crazy things all the time just because they have uh, a hole in their soul that they're trying to fill. They have a hole in their soul they're trying to fill. So they do different things to fill that hole. The problem is that it's only a temporary fill. They jump out of a plane. They jump off of a mountain. They climb a mountain. Uh, somebody sent me a uh, thing, a picture of a bunch of people, I mean, like at least a half a dozen people in Shanghai. Uh, they uh, climb a mountain and then they tie a hammock, a hammock from one mountain to the other and they, and they literally sleep on this tightrope for, for however long it is. So people do all types of silly things. They go swim with sharks. You know, sometimes they give some food to the shark. They do all types of things that any person with a, uh, you know, with a soul that's not as holy, meaning with holes in it, not holy as in, uh, is a, uh, no, this is, uh, why are you wasting your time? What business do you have playing with sharks or jumping out of planes and so on? But uh, listen, people need an adrenaline rush because they are trying to fill a void. They're trying to fill a void. Uh, sometimes they do it with business. Sometimes they do it with different life risks and so on. Drugs and so on. The reality is that you're, they try to feed something spiritual, their soul. They're trying to feed it something material, something physical. And they all have to continue doing it forever because it's never enough because the physical can never satiate the spiritual uh, and that's that's the uh, eventually some of them wake up and see the truth and they do tshuva uh, some of them waste their whole lives and only realize that they've wasted their whole lives when it's already too late but uh, as far as that guy that fell off a mountain um, obviously it's he deserved it for whatever reason it was in Shemaim he deserved it. No one dies without deserving it. Um, does it mean that uh, we wanted him to die? No, I don't even know who he was. But the point is, is that nothing happens without Hashem signing off on it, is the point. Nothing. There's no suffering without sin. There's no suffering without sin. There has to be a sin somewhere along the line that caused it. His, as well as others. As well as others.
So the way it generally works, which was one of the f- initial things that blew my mind when I first started learning Torah with Rabbi Ephraim, when he explained this concept to me, I realized probably more than anything, at least at that stage, that this Torah is divine. Because nothing else could explain things that way. So I've, I've, I've ventured into a lot of different types of wisdom in my life, you know, whether it was psychology or, or other types of sciences, other, you know, uh, I read uh, all types of different books, and I've always been interested in wisdom. And nothing ever sounded like this. What is it? Now, everyone understands that there's a judge, there's a judgment, there's a dean, there's a dayan. Not everybody necessarily agrees with it, or likes it, or, or welcomes it, or but everybody understands the concept of it. There's a judge and there's a uh, judgment. But the way Hashem works, according to the Torah, is quite different. Meaning that when I say there's no suffering without sin, most people think the guy that died or the woman that died sinned, and therefore Hashem brought them suffering. Whether He killed them, or uh, he got a disease, or they lost money, or whatever the case may be. That's the general understanding people get. But that's incorrect. It's an incomplete understanding. The real explanation of it, or at least the next part of it, is the following. It's not that they just sinned, and therefore Hashem punished them. But Hashem, before He punishes this person, has to look at every single person that is connected to this person and see if they deserve, they, the ones that didn't sin, if they deserve to suffer also from seeing their loved ones suffer. So if someone gets a punishment of whatever kind, every single person around them is also getting a Musar lesson from Hashem. Hey, by the way, you also deserve something. You also did something, and that's why you're now suffering seeing your sister in pain, seeing your brother lose money, seeing your father lose a foot. Whatever happened, whatever disaster happened in the world that breaks our heart, we have to understand that the, the perfect judge, the divine judge, Hashem Barach, he doesn't just look at the person per se. He looks at the world around him. Now, to what extent is this? Even if, let's say, for example, he has a friend, the guy that did the sin. His mom, his dad, his brother, his sister, his friends, his next-door neighbor, his boss, his colleague, whatever, everyone around them sinned. They deserve also for him to get, I don't know, the disease or something. Okay? But he knows somebody that he went to school with 25 years ago, and that person became a tzaddik, like something unbelievable. This person became tzaddik, he's a big Talmud Chacham, he's writing books, he's giving lectures, he's getting people to do tshuva. This person is a little Moshe Rabbeinu. Now this person, he hasn't spoken to him in 25 years though. He hasn't spoken to him in 25 years. But as Hashem runs the world, he sees the future. He sees that, oh, three, six, four, five months after this happens, this tzaddik is going to run into him or into someone that knows him and is going to find out that his old friend from childhood 25 years ago is suffering. So now he has to look at him too. Does he deserve from 25 years ago, does he deserve that punishment of hearing the bad news? And if he doesn't, 
if the guy that he hasn't seen in 25 years doesn't deserve the punishment, nothing happens. Hashem does not deliver the punishment just for the guy you haven't seen in 25 years, but because he did tshuva and he became a tzaddik. He saved you. And you don't even know it. You don't even know it. That's the greatness of Hashem Yitbarach. When they say chasdeh Hashem, the kindness of Hashem, we have not even a simplest inclination of what it means. Now I'll tell you something. The tefillah we do every day, it's really wonderful. The best Musar book in the world, I think, other than the five books of Moses, I don't think there's any other Musar book better than the Sidur. Where you pray every day if you actually understand what it says. Now, after Amidah, towards the end of prayer, towards the end, before you go into the section of reading the daily reading, the daily Tehilim. On Monday you read a certain Tehilim, uh, number 24, on, uh, I'm sorry, on Sunday, on uh, 24, on Monday you read uh, 48, and so on and so forth. But before that, before that section starts, you read, Shilem Ma'alot David, Lulei Adonai Sheyalanu. Yomar Na Yisrael, Lulei Adonai Sheyalanu. This is song of David. Uh, had Hashem not been with us to declare, to declare it, let's declare it now, Hashem had not been with, uh, with us and rose up against uh, the men, uh, the, these, these enemies that we have, the, the world would have swallowed us alive, and so on and so forth. So this Tehilim number 124 has a verse that it's, if you actually understand what it says, I, I, honestly, I ignored it for a while. I didn't really, never really thought about it until recently. But you actually contemplate, mitbonin, mitbonin, what you're actually saying here, and who's saying it, it gives you the best Musar lesson you can get for the day. David Melech, Kodesh Kodeshim, as you said earlier yourself, fulfilled every single one of the mitzvot in the Torah. Something unbelievable. From him we learn that a Jew is obligated to do 100 blessings per day. And Rabbi Vadya, Allah Shalom, used to be a big makpid, very, very strict with it to make sure to tell all the students do at least 100 blessings a day. You already get about 50 from your prayers. You should be able to do another 50 or a little less than 50, 40 or so on your own throughout the day from eating, from going to the bathroom, and so on and so forth. But this Davina Melech, at this point, when he wrote this Tehilim 124, where is he? What's he doing? He's the king of Israel. He's on top of the world. When he shoots an arrow, shoots an arrow, he kills 800 men. Every arrow he shot in a war. Every war he fought, he beat everybody. When he shot an arrow, 800 men died. And he would feel sorry about it. Why? He says, the Torah says, if you're really righteous, you should kill 1,000 for one. So I'm missing 200. I'm missing 200. One arrow, one arrow, arrow. We're not talking about an atomic bomb, a grenade. Talking about an arrow, one arrow to do, 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 800 people die. He was upset that he's not killing a thousand. He says, Abdu Chuba. He says, Yeah, Hashem told him, Yeah, it's the thing that what happened with Batsheva didn't look good. It's not a really a sin, but it didn't look good. For that, you lost 200. So now, this Kodesh Kodeshim David Melech, Mashiach comes from David Melech, he is winning every war. 
he is I mean he talks to God Mashiach comes from him I mean it doesn't get better than that he has money he has women he has everything you could possibly imagine in this world and the next world I mean there's nothing you could so what would somebody like this what should he bless Hashem for you would think Baruch Hashem for giving me a good wife Baruch Hashem for making me a king Baruch Hashem for killing 800 people per arrow Baruch Hashem I don't forgive me kids Baruch Hashem forgive me what is he praising Hashem for here you know what he's praising for Hashem for it says Baruch Adonai Blessed is Hashem that did not present us as prey, as meat, in their teeth. Whose teeth? Everyone's. All of the goyim, all of the nations around us hate us, sinat mavit. All of them hate us. Sometimes they tell us, sometimes they hide it. Sometimes they say, hey, what's up, man? And then they stab you like the FedEx driver. Sometimes they, uh, they're, you know, Nazis. Like they had a uh, thing this weekend. They tell everybody they hate Jews. Sometimes they hide it, sometimes no. He's saying, Baruch Hashem, that I'm not a piece of meat in the teeth of my haters. What kind of blessing is this? You're winning in the war, David. You're the one that's winning the war. They, they should be doing this blessing. That they're not uh, meeting your teeth. No. You're the king of the world, not just king of Israel. Why is he saying such a blessing? What he's teaching us here, Rabotai, is something that each one of us needs to understand. The fact that you're here, alive and well, Baruch Hashem, the fact that you're able to exercise your ability and obligation to be a Jew is a miracle. That is the biggest miracle, bigger than any other miracle you can ever experience. Why? It's not natural for you to be able to sit here, listen to Shul Torah, and even be alive as a Jew. It's not, it's, it's not natural. Why? You think about it. There are 8 billion people in the world approximately. The vast majority of them hate us, sinat mavet. They want us to die yesterday. Like I said, some are vocal, some are not. Some have protests about it, sometimes do things behind the scene. The reality is the vast majority of the world doesn't like Jews. Even if it's not, even if it's only half, which is not true, but let's say it's half. It's still billions. How many Jews are there? 20 million that we know of? Meaning that if all of a hate of 4 billion people, hate 4 billion people, you package it into one. Just the hate without weapons already is an atomic bomb. So think about it, just that hate, if those 4 billion, 5 billion, 6 billion, 8 billion, whatever it is, if they all just decide to spit your direction, we'd all drown. No weapons, forget about it. They'll just spit. Or they just all light a match. Just a regular match. Just a regular match for, for a cigarette or for candles or for something. Just light a match. Light a match, we all become barbecue. And they can put us in their teeth and eat us. That's what the Vida Melech is saying. He says the fact that we're not meat in their teeth, that's a miracle. And this is why he's winning the wars. 
the fact that you have the ability to be a Jew, a religious Jew, a religious Jewish woman, it's unbelievable. And not doing it is the biggest foolishness in history. Why? You're going to go up to Shemayim, and Hashem says, look how many miracles I made for you, and you didn't even take the gift. I gave you a gift. In a generation of Moshe Rabbeinu, they were killing kids on the street. They were killing people and just making them slaves, putting the kids inside blocks. The pyramids are full of Jewish bones. All of Egypt is full of it. In the times of uh, Bet HaMikdash, rivers of blood, from, from Jewish blood, from how much they murdered us. Somebody taught people Torah, a little shield Torah, they'd murder and make an example out of him. Shem if you read Masechet Gitin, what they did to some of the holy rabbis, they peeled their skin, they sold their skin, their meat in the market. Rabbi Akiva, they cut them into little pieces and they sold it as meat in the market. Like meat, like steak. So it's not stories, it's reality, it's historical. This is what happened to Am Yisrael, Rabotai. We have the ability to fulfill Torah and mitzvot. No one's chasing, and if they are, we can get them arrested. Or we could just move. Nothing. What do we do? Eh, I don't feel like being religious. As absurd as it can possibly be. Because David Melech is telling you, I have all the things you want. And I'm telling you, the, bigger ble- the biggest blessing is what you have. The biggest blessing is what you have right now in this last generation before Mashiach comes. This is the biggest blessing of all. You have religious freedom. The fact that they're not eating you is a miracle. And he's literal about it. It's not like it's some, he's talking figuratively. No, no, he's literally saying, it's because he says it multiple times. So now, let's just go. I spoke about this with Rabbi Ephraim, and he completed the Chidush. He says, look at how right our sages are when they say that we've continued to deteriorate. In every generation, unfortunately, you can see it here. You can see it here. In the book of Echa, Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 39, the prophet Jeremiah that wrote the book of Echa says, about what is a loving person complaining? A man for his own sins. Let us search and examine our ways and do tshuva to Hashem, return to Hashem. In so many words, the prophet Jeremiah says, what are you complaining about? something bad's happening let's do tshuva return to Hashem so if you notice now the prophet Jeremiah lived during the Bet HaMikdash the first Bet HaMikdash the end of it the Bet HaMikdash was around for 410 years the Vida Melech died before the first Bet HaMikdash because his son Shlomo built the Bet HaMikdash meaning that the time difference between this psalm 124, when David Melech wrote the psalm thanking Hashem for not making us meat in the teeth of the Goyim, and Jeremiah saying to Am Yisrael, what are you complaining about? If anything bad is in your life, it's because of your sins. Just do tshuva. 
It's about a 410 year difference. You see how much we've deteriorated in 410 years. In a generation of David HaMelech, David HaMelech, the greatest of all the generation, says, Baruch Hashem, that we're not meat. He's appreciating something that we don't even consider. Whereas Jeremiah, the Gdolador of his generation says, just don't complain. Forget about thanking Hashem that you're not meat in the in the mouth of the Goyim. Just don't complain. That's already enough. In this generation, that's already enough. Us now, 2,000 years later, Hashem and Hashem, what do we do? We complain against Hashem. We go against them. We're everything. Where does it say that? It says it, Rabotai, Parashat Azinu. Parashat Azinu, the five books of Moses. Moshe Rabbeinu gives Musar to Am Yisrael and he says to them, if you're going to sin, if you're going to sin, you're going to do all these things. In chapter 32, it starts in verse 16, he says, they would provoke his jealousy with strangers. They would anger him with abominations, meaning all these different things that we're doing. They would slaughter. They would. Uh, they would slaughter to demons without power. God, God, gods who they not knew, meaning they started worshiping idols, started uh, doing Ouija boards, and all types of craziness that people do. Newcomers recently alive, who, whom your ancestors did not dread. He's given a prophecy. What's the prophecy? You ignored the rock, meaning you ignored Hashem who gave birth to you, and forgot God who brought you forth. Hashem gave you memory. And Hashem gave you the chesed, He gave you the kindness of forgetfulness. Memory to remember the Torah, to remember your family, to remember things. But He also gave you kindness as He gave you a present of forgetfulness. Why? So if something bad happens in your life, you can forget it after a short period of time. Because if we didn't forget it, there are certain people in the world that have this uh, disease. It's not really a, uh, a, a benefit. It's a disease, even according to them. Where they don't forget anything. It's a tragedy to not forget. Because sometimes you have difficulty in your life. You need, you need to forget it. If somebody died in your life, Shem Elchem, you, 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 you have to forget it. And Hashem says, generally, you'll forget about at least the pain, the initial pain, after a year. This is why Yaakov Avinu knew there was something wrong when everything, the whole story with Yosef HaTzadik, his son, because he still could not forget the pain after 22 years. He knew there was something wrong. Because generally, after a year, already you start coming back to yourself after there's a death. So now, Hashem says, I gave you memory, and I gave you forgetfulness. What'd you do? You used the memory I gave you to learn things, other things. Learn about other gods. Learn about other things. And the forgetfulness, what'd you do? You forgot about me. The same gift I gave you, you used against me. Like fui tova we are. Ungrateful people. And that's why it says, Am naval velochacham. Moshe Rabbeinu says, we're, dis- we're despicable. When we're sinners, we're despicable. And not smart. Why despicable, not smart? He says, because... You use the gifts that Hashem gave you against him. Now, the Chachamim explain it where they say that if a person really understood what his Neshama understands, 
If Neshama understands the whole story and he didn't have the Yetzirah, he would be disgusted with his own actions to the point where he would ask Hashem to punish him. And that's actually what happens in Shemaim. He asks Hashem, punish me. What I did to you. After everything you gave me. Because he sees the whole movie as without Yetzirah. So now, this Rabotai is how our generations have changed so drastically, even before us, even at the time of David Melech and Jeremiah. What is it like? There's a, uh, a guy that owed a lot of money to a bunch of people. I actually have a guy that called me a few years ago, two, three years ago, and told me he borrowed a bunch of money from a bunch of different people. And uh, something happened, he lost all the money, he can't pay them back, but now he can't even work anymore because of all the pressure they're putting on him. They want their money back and he doesn't have it. So he can't even make it because he's depressed and he's this and he's that. When you owe people money, it's a nightmare. When they're hounding you and making you feel like a criminal, it's the worst. You you almost want to die. So this guy didn't know what to do. I tried giving him some advice. And uh, unfortunately, he didn't listen to it. And uh, two years later, he's still in the same hole. He would have actually been better off if he listened. But nonetheless, everybody gets the advice. It's free. You want to listen, you listen. You don't want to listen. Same price. I just don't understand. Why would you ask me for advice if you're not going to listen to me? Because then it's just a waste of my time. But that's usually why I don't deal with these things uh, as much, at least not anymore. But anyway, there was one time a guy, it's a funny story. It's not a true story. It's just a joke. Uh, I have to give you disclosures for my jokes. The story I told, told you now is true. The story I'm about to tell you is not true. It's false. But similar. So there was a, uh, I have so many jokes, I have to give you disclosures. It's a joke. So, <laughs> so anyway, there was one guy who owed a lot of people money. And people were hounding him. Every five minutes, hello, I need my money, I need my money, I'm going to sue you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to this, I'm going to that. The guy didn't know what to do. So one of his friends that he borrowed money from, came to him, oh, I need the money. He's like, listen, I don't know what to do, I'm depressed. The guy starts crying. He goes, oh, okay, okay. He fell back to him. He goes, okay, listen. I got you. You owe money to 50 people. They're hounding you. They're calling you. I got you, I got you. Okay, listen, this is what you do. Next time somebody comes to you, next time somebody comes to you and asks you for money, you need everybody to leave you alone because without them leaving you alone, you're not going to be able to work. You're not going to be able to live. So you pretend to be crazy. Just jump on a table, start to go, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, just start doing all types of crazy things. They'll think you're crazy, they'll leave you alone. He goes, really? It's going to work? He goes, yeah. He goes, okay, I'll give it a shot. What do I have to lose? So the guy leaves, and he goes in, you know, pay me back when you can. He goes, no, he upset. So anyway, the guy, you know, starts getting back to himself. Next thing you know, a few hours later, hello? Opens the door. He goes, ooh, wow, ooh, wow. The guy's like, whoa. The guy went crazy. Okay. See you later. Leaves. He goes, he's scanned. The guy owed so much money. He lost his mind. What am I going to do? He lost his mind. He doesn't even know he owes me money. He's a, he thinks he's a monkey. The guy leaves. A few hours later, somebody else, hello. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Okay. The guy, everybody starts leaving one after another. A couple of weeks pass by. He started to get back to himself, started to do his thing. His friend comes to him. To see, okay, listen, this guy's been saving some money. He hasn't been paying anybody else back for a couple of weeks. He's making some money. Let me get my money back. 
He comes back to his friend. He goes, hey, listen, I'm here to get the money. He goes, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. He goes, slaps him in his face. He goes, you idiot. I'm the one who taught you the trick. You got to pray my prayer. Are you crazy to me? I'm the one who taught you the trick. It's funny, but it's true. That's us. Hashem gave us a lot of tricks, and we're using it against them. That's the, that's the mashal, nimshal. Ooh, ooh, ah. So... A person needs to understand that all of these things have a consequence. Now, the first thing the Mishnah says is, Dever bala olam al mitot amurot batorah Pestilence comes to the world for death penalties prescribed by the Torah. That were not carried out by the court. So when there was a divine mandate, there's something that, according to the Torah, there has to be a death penalty or, or something has to happen. And the court does not exercise its obligation. Then Hashem says, I'll take it into my own hands. But now that we don't have a Sanhedrin anymore, the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin teaches us that God addresses the miscarriage of justice by sending pestilence to kill those who deserve death. And Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 37b, teaches that after the Sanhedrin ceased to function, all of the sinners liable to the different four different types of death penalties could still die by the hand of God through forms of death that resemble what the court had. So it gives examples. It gives examples. So the first and worst type of death penalty is skila. Skila is stoning. The Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 45a, if you want to get scared, read this Gemara. It tells you exactly what happens. In so many words, I'm not going to go through all the details because it's relatively gruesome, but you will get the point anyway. When somebody violates Shabbat, what is the penalty? It's the worst penalty of all, which is stoning. What they do with stoning is they first off is they throw the person off of a tall building. And in case he didn't die, they have a huge boulder which they follows him. And if he doesn't, then there's, they throw rocks on him and so on and so forth. It gets worse and worse if the guy is, uh, I don't know, a uh, mutant that doesn't die. Or the point is that they keep him alive. It's a very, very gruesome death penalty. Now... The Gemara says that after the Sanhedrin ceased to function, what happens then? It says that Rashi in Maserik Tubot also gives this commentary that uh, the same type of death penalty would happen to a person by simply him falling off of a roof or getting into some other type of uh, accident or a wild animal running him over. In today's age, it would be like an automobile accident or somebody falling off of a building or an airplane crash. This is stoning. This is stoning. So no one should think, oh, it's because uh, you know, the, the pilot wasn't paying attention. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with the pilot. The pilot is a tool that Hashem used. What is it like? We have 613 mitzvot from the Torah seven from the rabbis 
Now, not all of them apply to us because we're not all women, we're not all men, we're not all uh, Kohanim, we're not all in the Beit HaMikdash, and so on and so forth. But there are a good part of it, a good half of it, that do apply to us. But unfortunately, not only do we not do the mitzvot completely, but even the ones that we do, sometimes we slack on them. So if we do some cheshbon nefesh, we do some self-accounting, what if Hashem worked that way with us? Now some years ago, there was a major historic event for Am Yisrael, especially the state of Israel, where it was the first Jewish astronaut was going to go to space. First Jewish astronaut, an Israeli astronaut. And he brought with him a Sefer Torah. Brought with him a Sefer Torah. And it was a historic event. Because even though we had technology and we had smart people and we had this and we had that, we didn't have the ability to go to space. So America agreed to have him on and he was going to go. And as you would have it, the rocket went up and the whole world watched the rocket explode. And everyone died in it. Now after investigation of what happened, because you're talking about a multi-billion dollar project. This is not a, uh, a backyard uh, rocket that a few people built. A rocket has over a million parts. One million parts. A rocket that goes to space has over a million parts. Imagine just counting one, two, three, four, five will take you a year. Putting together a million parts, ooh, what? Ah. A rocket has a million parts. So they're trying to figure out which one of the parts went off that caused the explosion. And the conclusion was there was one screw that's worth two and a half cents that you buy at uh, Home Depot or your local hardware store that wasn't screwed on tight enough. And with the amount of pressure that's there, caused problems, one piece, two pieces, three pieces. Whole rocket, multi-billion dollar project. Lives in it. The first Jew in history in it. Sefer Torah in it. Everything in it, the whole world watching. A two and a half cent screw. Ruin the whole thing. Rabotai, this is Musal. What's the Musal? People go to Beknesset every day. They wake up early. They have to go to work, but they go to Beknesset before work. You woke up, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. You're waking up an hour, two hours before you need to, really. Why? To go pray to God. You got to the big, you know, you got, you got woke up, brush your teeth, hopefully. You uh, open your, you know, your eyes, take the cobwebs out, put on some clothes. And you're running to shul because you're never waking up with uh, time to spare. You're always driving 150 miles an hour down the block to get there on time so you don't miss the minyan. Because they can't say Kaddish without you. And you get there. And everyone's there already. You know, you put your talit on your head right away and you put, you almost forgot the blessing. But then you all get, okay. And then you put the tefillin and you wrap it. Oh, no, I have to do it like this. And you, oh, and you talked between the tefillin. Now you have to do a second blessing. 
But you're so in a hurry, you get there, okay, I'm here, Baruch Hashem, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And you open the Siddur, and they're middle of Kobano, and they're and everybody's in it, and then, and then, you finally got there. And your friend shows up, 15, 20 minutes later, and he starts talking to you. He says, so how was it last night, the dinner? And you're like, oh, it was pretty good. You should have come. And you guys just start having a conversation in Beknitzit. You guys just start having a casual conversation. You have a tefillin on. You have a direct line with Hashem Barach right now. Tefillin's direct line with Hashem Barach. You have Talit. You're in Bet Mikdash. You're in Beknesset. Your friend came and he says, So how was dinner last night? And he told him, I should have come. It was a good game. It's good steak. Steve and Dave came. And you guys are having a casual conversation like nothing's wrong. This is much worse than the, than the, the little screw. This is much worse than the two and a half cent screw. The Shulchan Aruch says, the sin is too big for him. The sin you just talked in shul is too big for him. Too big for him to do tshuva. Why? The whole Beknesset suffers because of you. The Shekhinah lives. Why? You answered him. He, the fool, came and asked you, why didn't you come? Where were you? And do, 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 whatever. What did you think of Trump? What did you think of Hillary? What did you think of Hitler? What did you think of anybody? Fine. And you answered him. You, you engaged the conversation. Shechina leaves the shul. Bye. Why? It officially becomes a Moshav Letim. Shulchan Aruch says it's too big of a sin for him to carry. Why? All of their prayers have to hold in the middle. They just, they're all on hold now. Why? He's talking about stakes and politics with feeling on. The reality is, Rabotai, I see this all the time where people finish the prayer. Let's say they didn't talk the whole prayer or they did or whatever they did. They finish prayer and they stay around the shul. Sometimes people have extra time in their life. I don't know why. They don't go to work. They don't go learn. I don't know what they do. But they pretend like they're tzaddikim. They stay around the shul and they have the tefillin on and the talit on and they walk around. Then you start seeing them answering the phone. Hey, yeah, yeah, no, I need this. No, no, put this over there. But, oh, yeah, you're buying groceries. You're buying this. They start managing their day-to-day life with tefillin on. Is something wrong with you? Tefillin is, is, is in essence, you're, Hashem is next to you. And you're talking to somebody else? You're talking to somebody, Hashem is next to you. You're talking to somebody else? It's like asking your wife if your girlfriend's pretty. What's the matter with you? Take off the tefillin, Ribbono Shalom. Or like a woman doing the tefillah for Shabbat. The candles. She's doing the candles. She's going to do it with her hands and everything. All the, the, but she doesn't cover her hair. She doesn't cover her hair. And sometimes she doesn't even cover her body. Sometimes she's with a robe. Sometimes without the robe. Sometimes it's better off she had a robe. You're inviting Hashem to what? To nakedness? Do you know that your husband is not even allowed to say Kriyat Shema? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Enokenu, Hashem Echad. Or Birkat HaMazon, unless you cover your hair with a mitpachat or hat. He's not allowed to say Birkat HaMazon next to you. 
Because of Mazon, he just ate bread. He has to say, thank you, Hashem. cannot say it next to you. You didn't cover your hair. He can't say, Shema Yisrael. He can't say it. You are doing it yourself. Now you're a blessing for the candles. Oh, Hashem, it's Shabbat. Thank you. With the dish and with the that and everything. Else. Okay, fine. Cover yourself. What's the matter with you? People simply don't know. They're not doing it on purpose. They're not evil. They're good people. They're just clueless. Like we were most of our lives. And still are in some aspects. That's what we have to. That's why Hashem gives us these different mikrim, these different events that happen in the world. The Musar you learned from the rocket, a multi-billion-dollar rocket that wasn't connected to you until today. Billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of people went into this project, and the whole thing went to shambles because of a two-cent screw. Your tefillah, you're driving 150 miles an hour, your tefillin for $2,000, your talit from Israel for a few hundred bucks, and everything you did all went to garbage. Why? You talked to your friend about stakes, about politics and shul. You didn't cover your hair before you did the bracha for the candles. It's a small thing that ruins everything. Small thing. It doesn't need to be a big thing. So the skilah rabotai... It's not so far away from some people because we don't pay attention. It's not something that. It's not. It's not something we should ignore. It happens all the time. Everybody here knows somebody that got into a car accident. Everybody here knows somebody that fell off of a building of some kind. Everybody knows somebody that got into one of these accidents directly, indirectly. That's skila. But that's also musar for us. To do tshuva, Hashem says, if he got the punishment and you suffered from it also because it hurt your heart and you cried a little bit and it bothered you a little bit and so on, that means you have to be punished also. That means you are doing something wrong also. The second thing is of srifa. It's horrible. I don't know. To me, it seems worse, to be honest with you, but apparently it's not. Oh, Hashem, I haven't had the... Uh, real one, but I had other ones that were similar to it. Srefah is a case where the Gemara talks about it, where it says that they would, it's burning, where they would take hot lead and they would pour it down the guilty person's throat and he would die. This is written in a book, guys. I didn't make, I didn't write this. This is what Hashem says. So, since the Sanhedrin has been, was, was shut down, what would happen? Hashem replaced this punishment with other things that are similar to burning. Fire. It seems like almost every other day there's a fire in some part of America or different parts of the world where there's thousands of, of homes being burned. I know just a few months ago there was a huge fire in California. Hundreds of homes were burned. I mean, each one of these homes is a million dollars. Some more burned to nothing. We're at zero now. What do you think it just happened? It's an accident. Hashem didn't pay attention. This happens for a reason. Another thing also is snake bite. People that get hit get bitten by a snake or any other type of venom because venom feels like burning. There's all the other types of burning, burning feeling that a person can get. But the point is, Rabotai, is that this feeling of burning or actual burning is a form of death penalty 
doesn't necessarily need to bring death but it is a form of death penalty you have to do me a favor and sit down you keep going up and down it's difficult to focus the third one is decapitation the third form of death penalty according to the Torah is decapitation Ereg A person might receive the equivalent at the hands of bandits, uh, where they would they would execute a person by beheading. In today's world, all of us, unfortunately, are familiar with the deathly pictures and and, and uh, short films that ISIS and other terrorists sent the mass media to show what they do with people that don't agree with their foolishness. They cut off their heads. This too was not happenstance. This too was not in the hands of the Arabs. This is always in the hands of Hashem Barach. Believing anything otherwise is a form of kfirah, is a form of heresy against Hashem. To think that anything has power outside of Hashem is a form of heresy. The fourth is strangulation, chenik, which is a suffocating a person by drowning them or by choking them and so on, but here, or, or, or hanging them and so on, but here in today's world, it's suffocation through drowning, or even from a, the Gemara in Maserik Tubot, says there's an actual disease called Askera. Askera is uh, associated with uh, diphtheria, diphtheria, which is when the throat becomes so constricted that a person can't breathe. This is actually a real disease. Shem I don't know about you guys. I mean, this stuff scares me. If it doesn't scare you, you have to check your pulse. Because all of this stuff happens in the world every day. No, there's no Sanhedrin, but that's what the Gemara is trying to tell you here. That's what the Mishnah is trying to tell you here. You don't need the Sanhedrin. Hashem runs the world. Hashem runs the world. All of these things happen in the world. Now, there's going to be people out there that say, yeah, but this guy drove on Shabbat and he didn't get the car accident. This guy, uh, you know, went with a woman that he's not allowed to be with, and he didn't get the uh, hot lava down his throat. So, for those people, the very same David Melech, Kodesh Kodeshim, the Mashiach comes from, wrote a psalm for them too. It's called Psalm 50. Psalm number 50, Tehilim number 50. This shows, by the way, that what David Melech wrote was a hundred percent through prophecy combination of prophecy Ruach HaKodesh, and so on why because you're seeing that Hashem himself is talking here you read that you read it in the words that you understand language you understand see that Hashem himself is talking here so here it says a song by Asaf Oh, Almighty Hashem spoke and called to the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So it's, in essence, Hashem is talking to Am Yisrael here. So He's telling them what He's expecting from us. When you fast forward to verse number 7, it says this, Pay heed, my people, meaning pay attention, and I shall speak. Israel and I shall bear witness against you. God, your God am I. Meaning, don't be mistaking, this is not David and it's not a soft talking. Hashem is talking. And what is he saying? 
לא על זבחיך הוכיחיך, ועולותיך לנגדי תמיד. I shall not rebuke you for your sacrifices nor for your burnt offerings, my constant concern. Meaning you should know all these things. I'm not going to bother with you. All these, you made a korban, or you didn't do it, it wasn't the greatest. That's not the main focus. What's the main focus? I take not from your household any bull, nor from your pens any goats. Meaning, I don't really need these goats or cows that you're, you're bringing as a korban. At the time of Beth HaMikdash, we had korbanot, we had sacrifices. So don't think that I really care about this cow. For mine is every beast anyway. Meaning everything is mine anyway. I don't need you to bring me the cow. It's mine anyway. This is just a form of an opportunity for you to do tshuva. And he says in verse 12, even if I were hungry, meaning well, I eat these things, he says, even if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For mine is the world in its fullness. Meaning even if, let's say, hypothetically speaking, I actually did eat the cows. And I did eat the calves and so on and so forth. I wouldn't ask you to bring me my food. That would make you my boss. So don't think for a moment that these sacrifices is really the whole point. What does it mean to us? Today, our sacrifices are our prayers. Today, our sacrifices are going to shul. Today, our sacrifice is Amidat, Tfilat Shmonaisle, all these blessings we have, that's, that's our korbanot. He says, don't think this is enough, is what he's saying. Do I eat the flesh of the bulls and drink the blood of goats? Like, do you really think I eat this stuff? You think I really need your prayer? You really think I need this? What is it all about? Offer God confession. Meaning, the tshuva. Offer God tshuva and then redeem your vows to the Most High. Point of everything is for you to do tshuva. That's the point of everything. No tshuva, it's all worthless. Meaning, if you're going to shul every day, 5 o'clock in the morning, but you're talking to your friends at shul, or you're still stealing in your business, or you're still driving on Shabbat, or you're still dishonest, and you're still cheating, and you're still not learning Torah, and you're still wasting your time, there's no point of you doing anything. Wait, I need you to go to shul. I need you to pray to me, like as if it's doing something for me. It's for you. It's an opportunity for you to connect to Hashem Barach. If you're thinking that you're just filling a void, like I need your prayer. I need you to come to shul. I need you. Something's wrong here. The whole point is for you to confess your sins. The whole point is for you to do tshuva. If they're righteous, yes, but we're not talking about simply the righteous. We're talking about people just understanding the truth. Not everyone is righteous. If they're righteous, then obviously it's a different story for them. And call upon me in the day of distress. I will release you and you will honor me. Meaning, if you're righteous, you'll do tshuva. When you call for me, I'll answer. But to the rasha, to the wicked, in verse 16, what did he say? But to the wicked, God said, For what purpose do you recount my decrees and bear my covenant upon your lips? 
Meaning, if you're going to continue being a thief, if you're going to continue wasting seed, if you're going to continue violating Shabbat with no hope or even inclination to ever do tshuva, why do you even bother doing anything? Like, there's a lot of rabbis, for some reason, they have this, this thought process where they tell people, listen, anything you do is good enough. Now, to the average secular mind person, that makes it seem like God needs us. Like anything you do is good enough. Like everything you do is so good. It's good. It's good. It's not good. Because in essence, you're giving the guy a get out of jail free card. Theoretical get out of jail free card. Where pretty much whatever I do is good enough. If I ever get to something else, that's better. That's not true. It's simply not true. Of course, when you first start doing chuba, you can't do everything. You don't even know everything to do. But you can't say to the guy, it's good enough. It's not good enough. You have to aim for more. Same thing like you aim for more with more money. Same thing you aim for more, more success. Same thing you aim for more in everything else in, in life. You have to aim for more with Hashem. You can't just tell, oh, it's good enough. Hashem says, if I just gave you one bite of uh, meat a week, is that enough? Oh, that's not enough? Okay, so you just praying and violating Shabbat is not enough either. It's not enough. Yes, you have to do more. And if you, if you have no intention of doing tshuva, why do you even bother doing anything at all? Meaning, if you're planning on violating next week's Shabbat, why do you even bother going to shul on Yom Kippur? It's not going to help you. Yom Kippur doesn't just tell you, oh, you could sin the whole year, and on Yom Kippur, you're going to be okay. It's actually a Mishnah in Pirkei Avod, we're going to read in chapter 6. Somebody that is somebody that continues sin, it's gonna says, I'm gonna do a sin and then I'll do tshuva. I'm gonna do a sin, I'm gonna do tshuva. Meaning, you are already planning that you're gonna continue sinning. Not that maybe you're gonna sin, maybe not. Meaning, you already have a plan to sin. I'm gonna go with this girl now and then I'm gonna do tshuva tomorrow. And then after I do tshuva, I'm gonna go back with her and then I'll do tshuva again two days from now. And then I'm gonna go back with her. And I'm going to tshuva again. Meaning you already have in your planner that your sin already planned. It's not, you have no intention of doing real tshuva. You're, going to, you're planning on sinning. You're thinking you could fool the system that way. So Hashem says, Yom Kippur is not even going to help you. They don't even let him do tshuva in Shemayim. And Yom Kippur doesn't even help him. That's the Mishnah. We'll read it to Bezat Hashem soon. And this is the verse where he says, eh, the Rasha, the wicked, for what purpose do you even recall my decrees? Why? You hated Musar, and you threw my words behind you. For all of those people that hate Musar, hey, Hashem wrote you a verse. Shem wrote you a verse. You hate Musar. That caused you to be a Rasha. Why? The only way you're going to do Tshuva is Musar. It's the only way. There's no other way. There is no Musar and something else. And for anyone that tells you there's something else, they're simply not telling you the truth. Because that's what Hashem is saying. You hated Musar. That means you can't do Tshuva. He's not saying, oh, you hated Musar to the righteous, to the tzaddik. He's not saying it to the righteous, he's saying it to the wicked. 
You hated Musar and you threw my words behind you, meaning because you hated Musar, you ignored everything I said. If you saw a thief, you agreed with him, to be with him, with an adulterer was your lot, you dispatch your mouth for evil and your tongue adheres to deceit, you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your mother's son, meaning you saw a thief, he's like, ah, good for him. He got away with it. He took money from the rich people. You agreed with him. You justified his actions. You saw a guy cheating on his wife. Said nothing. Ah, listen. He knows what's good for him. Like that type of mentality. Like you saw the Nashaim and you actually hung out with them. They're your friends. You never said anything. You saw the guy cheating on his wife. Ah, he knows what's good for him. You saw the woman cheating on her husband. Ah, she knows what's good for her. Her husband deserves it. You dispatch your mouth for evil. A bunch of Lashon Arai kept saying bad things on people. Every time you tell people rebuke today, they, oh, it's Lashon Arai against Am Yisrael. It's not Lashon Arai. It's what Hashem says. Lashon Arai doesn't apply to Reshaim. If the person's a Rasha, there's no Lashon Arai principle. There's no issue with Lashon Arai. The reality here, when, as far as rebuke, when you tell him rebuke, it's not, you're not saying something against the person. You're telling in order to help him. The point of rebuke is to help the person, not to insult them. But here he's saying, what do the wicked do? The wicked, their mouth is full of evil. Their tongue adheres deceit. They keep lying. They twist the Shem's words. You're telling people, oh, listen, 90% of Am Yisrael are violating Shabbat right now in order to wake up the sleeping souls of Am Yisrael to get Am Yisrael involved, to hopefully get people to do Kiruv. You post a recent statistic that came out by PW Research. They said 90% of Am Yisrael are violating, violating Shabbat. He posts this online, and what do the uh, lefty liberal losers say? Oh, that's Lashon Arai against Am Yisrael. You're saying Lashon Arai against Am Yisrael. You're worse than the Satan, somebody said to me. He says, you're worse than the Satan. You're saying Lashon Arai against Am Yisrael. Do you understand what's happening? He actually goes to my shul. You understand what's happening here? This is the twisted mind of people. Hashem wrote a verse for them. Let me finish the point. Hashem wrote a verse for them. He says, you twist my words for evil. Now, for those people that say, wait a minute, my friend drove on Shabbat, but a rock didn't fall on his head. My friend cheated on his wife, but uh, and went with a woman that's not uh, that's a non-Jew or this or that. That no no lava went down his throat. What happened to them? Hashem says on verse twenty-one, the scariest thing I personally have ever read. But it's not graphic. It's just simply scary if you understand it. These have you done, and I have kept silent. You thought that I was like you. I will rebuke you and lay it clearly before your eyes. Understand this now, you who have forgotten God, lest I tear you apart and there will be no one to rescue you. This is a verse from the Torah, Rabotai. This is not Yaron Ruven. Psalm 50. Hashem says, what, because the guy drove his Ferrari on Shabbat and he didn't get into a car crash? You thought that I wasn't paying attention? You thought I was like you, who don't do anything? 
Now I'm going to come for you. Now I'm going to come for you. I'm going to show you who you're dealing with. So for all of you watching, understand it now. All of you still that are still living with the 50% tshuva, with the tiny little quarter keeper, maybe sometimes, with the wig on your head that you know for sure is Avodah Zarah, but some rabbi from Chabad told you it's okay. With all this 50% uh, tshuva where they give tzedakah with stolen money. Go to shul, but use it as a social club. For you people, understand this now. You who have forgotten God, lest I tear you apart. He actually says this. this I'm reading this literally. I'll show it to you. It's right here. And no one will rescue you. Why? He's God. There's no one else. Who's going to come? Your friend that you talk to in Shabbat? Who's going to come? Your teacher? Your parents? Who's going to come? Die. Scary stuff. Honestly. You got to do tshuva. We got to do tshuva. You don't know what you're dealing with. Sometimes a person needs to get smacked in the face in order to realize what pain feels like. But some people are smart. And they feel somebody else's pain. Say, oh, you know what? I don't want that. I don't want that. Whatever you have, I don't want it. I don't want it. It's an unbelievable story I heard today. A lot of people know the Chafetz Chaim. Religious, non-religious, Jews, non-Jews, Chafetz Chaim, Baruch Hashem, his name is all over the world. One time the Chafetz Chaim's wife said, uh, why don't we, you know, our house is a disaster. Mamash, if you ever, some journalist came to visit, the Gdola Do, Chafetz Chaim, wanted to go see who this Chafetz Chaim that everybody talks about. He went, and he saw there's like a little hut that's half broken. He's like, there's no way that the biggest Jew in the world, the most important Jew in the world, lives in this shad. It's not, it's not possible. We kept looking. He's like, there's no other address. This is it. So he like knocked on the broken door, and he sees the Chafetz Chaim lives in this thing. It's unbelievable. Anyone who wants to get somewhat of an inclination of what it looks like, look at the pictures of Rav Steinemann's uh, house. Allah Shalom. The same milk crates that he had from 25 years ago holding his bed is what he had to this day milk crates held his bed yeah that's his bed milk crates it wasn't because of a lack of money just lack of concern for this world now the wife of the Chafetz Chaim one time asked them why don't we fix our house he goes, because fixing requires time and money. Which means that I'm going to have to stay away from, I'm going to have to lose Torah. It's simply not worth it. To make the money cost me time. The time is time of Torah. It's not worth it for me to spend this time of Torah time to fix a kitchen or fix a door or fix a this. Some rich guy came to visit him one time and he says to him, Kvodarav, where's your furniture? Like the very basic minimum of a human being needs. Where's your stuff? So the Chafetz Chaim says to him, where's your stuff? He goes, no, Kvodarav, 
I, I live far away. I'm just here visiting. He says, me too. I'm just here visiting. You should come see my house in Shemaim. So when his wife, when the Chafetz Chaim's wife told him, why don't we get, you know, fix the house, something? He says, it costs time. So she says to him, what about, what's the reason that Rabbi Chaim Ozer Godinsky, Rabbi Chaim Ozer, had a very fancy schmancy house, castle. So how come you became, he's a tzaddik. He says, what could I do? He's Gdolador. The Chafetz Chaim is called Rabbi Ozer the Gdolador. He accepted him, the whole world, he, he's bigger, he says. What can I do? He's the Gdolador. Gdolador is a king. It's a mitzvah for him to have such a house. Who am I, Bechlal? I'm Chafetz Chaim, he says. Who am I? I'm just Chafetz Chaim. He's Gdolador, Rabbi Chaim Ozer. So it's a mitzvah for him to have a fancy house or a castle. It's a mitzvah to give him. So now you understand who we're dealing with here. Who? Chafetz Chaim and also Rabbi Chaim Ozer. So one time, Rabotai, this is not long ago. This is 100 years ago. This is not like uh, 5,000 years ago. They didn't know Moshe Rabbeinu personally. It's 100 years ago, right before World War II. One time, Rabbi Chaim Ozel's daughter got very sick. Deathly sick. Everybody started praying. Nothing was changing. The students came to the Chafetz Chaim. They said, Kvod Rav, we need your prayer. Why? What happened? Rabbi Chaim Ozel, the Gdol Adol, his daughter is sick. Eh. Continued studying, doing his thing. He saw he's not reacting. This is not like a, some guy's daughter or some person. This is Gdol Adol. So they tried like pushing it a little extra, like Kvod Rav. It's Rabbi Chaim Ozel. His daughter, she's really, really sick. Ah! It's unlike the rabbi, it's like, oh, what's going on here? Everybody's confused. He loves everyone. It's Kodesh Kodashim. He accepts him as his uh, Gdoladol, as the biggest rabbi in the world. And he's just saying, ah. Eh? So I'm thinking at this point when I heard this story, I'm like, ah, hey, you probably knew she's going to be healed. So he's saying, ah, what am I? Right? That's what you're probably thinking. So the students go again to Rabbi, to Chafetz Chaim and say, Kvodarav, Rabbi Chaim Ozer's daughter is deathly sick. We need your prayer. He says, eh, what do you think? It's so pashut, it's so simple to just insult one of not Israel and get away with it? At this point, I'm confused listening to the story and the people that listen to this actually are even more confused. It's not so simple to insult Bat Israel. So they don't know what to do with this information. They go to Rabbi Chaim Ozer, the Gdoladol, and they say to him, for the Rav, we came, we asked for the Chafetz Chaim's uh, prayer for your daughter, and this is what he told her. He says, what do you think? It's uh, not a big deal to insult and hurt a, uh, a, uh, to hurt a Bat Israel, a daughter of Israel. Do you know what this means, for the Rav? He says, yes. Unfortunately, I know what the Chafetz Chaim means. He got his man, he said, okay, 
Let's go to this city. Get the horses ready. Let's go to this other city. Where? Tell us where we're going. We're going there. New city. No one's ever been there. He doesn't know what. They don't know what's going on. They're just following what the rabbi said. They get the horses ready. They get everything ready. They start going, going, going to a different city. They arrive at a place no one's ever been in. He tells them where to go. He gets to a certain place and he asks for a certain woman. This is embarrassing for everybody. The Gdola Dor is asking for a woman? I mean, strange. The biggest rabbi in the world is asking for some woman? Like, why are you asking for a woman? She, like, what happened? It's confusing. Tells him where to go, goes to the house. Um, the Balabite, they tell the Balabite that he's asking for his wife. So the Balabai, the husband of this woman, thinks that everyone's joking. It's like, the Gdola Do is going to come to my house asking for my wife? Nah, come on, guys. He didn't believe them. Because he was asking about it in the market. Eventually, moments later, he had to believe it. Why? Rabbi Chaim Oza arrived at his house at his door, knocking on his door. Hello, I'm looking for such and such woman. Everyone's watching this. Everyone's confused. They have no idea what to do. The guy fell from being scared that the Gdola door just arrived at his house. Now he goes and he opens the door. He says, yes, for the Rav. He goes, yes, I'm not looking for you. I'm actually looking for your wife. The guy is not, doesn't know what to do with himself. And then his wife appears from the, you know, she comes out of, out of the kitchen. He goes, ah, it's you again. The Rabbi Chaim Ozel. Ah, it's you again. Ah, why'd you even bother? She's talk- the guy, her husband, is embarrassed. How is his wife talking to Gdola Dol? Why are you even here? Who needs your face? Who needs? She starts talking to him with like bizayon, like insulting and nasty remarks. Rabbi Chaim Ozel comes to her and he says, I wanted to come and I wanted to say, I'm sorry. What I'm sorry for. They were on a shiduch and he rejected her. He decided he doesn't want to marry her. She says to him, what do you think? The Gdola Dor right now just said, I'm sorry. However, many years have passed, but the point is he came to him and said, I'm sorry. She says to him, you think I care about you and what you said? You think you moved me, Michlal? Who do you think you are? And she starts, ooh, wow, what comes out of her mouth. She starts insulting him like he's a truck driver from the streets. A husband passed out. Passed out. From the embarrassment, he couldn't deal with it. He passed out. His wife is insulting the biggest rabbi in the world. In his house. He can't tell her anything. He doesn't know what's going on here. Dora is over here taking the insults like a champ. Like it's no what's going on. Eventually, she stops. Rabbi Chaim Ozer sees that she's not accepting his apology. He leaves. He comes home. And he sees that his daughter died. The Gzera was fulfilled. Rabotai, 
this is the daughter of the biggest rabbi in the world at the time. When they came to the Chafetz Chaim and they told him, it's not that he didn't want to pray. He told the students, you have no idea what you're dealing with here. What do you think? It's simple. You could just insult a daughter of Israel and just nothing's going to happen. You think my little prayer can change it? Me. You just insult one of the daughters of God and I'm going to save you. Nothing's going to happen. Imagine how many people we insulted intentionally or unintentionally in our life and how much tshuva we just need to do for that. Forget the Shabbat, the kosher, the tarat mishpacha, the money issues, the this issue. Forget it. Just insulting your brother or sisters. Just insulting them. Just giving them an attitude. Yelling at them. Making them feel like, ah, I wish I wasn't around anymore after getting this insult. Just for that, just for that, that should get us to the point of crying. Because if it didn't work for, for the G'dolador, for Chaim Ozel, who's it going to work for? Do you understand? The Psalm 17 says in so many words that the Goim should praise Hashem. The Goim should praise Hashem. Why should they praise Hashem? For the wonders that He gave to Am Yisrael. This is confusing. Shouldn't they praise Hashem for things He did for them? Why should he pray? Why should the Goim praise Hashem for what he does for Am Yisrael? Because the reality is, Rabotai, only the Goim know how many times they've been trying to destroy Am Yisrael and Hashem ruins their plans. Like something was recently published just this last couple of days that Iran, Imachshima Vezicham, and their leadership want to send rockets to Israel. And they wanted to send it in the immediate future. And just over this weekend, a sudden natural event unnaturally happened where a storm of sand swallowed up most of the buildings in Iran. Mamash, you see this giant cloud the size of a country full of sand just cover their buildings in seconds. It's not like, uh, it's like oh, it's going to go away. It's like a headache. In seconds, the houses are half covered. Tehilim says the Goim know how many times they tried to destroy Am Yisrael, but the Jews don't even know. Why? Because Hashem foiled their plans. Hashem destroyed their plans. Meaning the Chazdeh Hashem, the kindness from Hashem that we get every day is unprecedented. It's unbelievable how much we get. How much kindness we get from Hashem. But that's also why the punishment is so heavy. Because just like he gives us an unsurmountable amount of kindness and protection where we don't even realize the guy just tried to stab us because we never saw him. Because a truck hit him and we didn't even see the truck either. Or like this one story of a guy in Israel was walking at night and he felt like this Arab guy was following him and he saw and he actually was following him but he kept walking it was at night it was a dark road 
perfect opportunity for something bad to happen. So he just continued praying and learning his Mishnayot in his head, and he got to his destination. Shortly later, the very same Arab-Palestinian terrorist stabbed and killed somebody else. They arrested him, and they asked him questions, and he admitted, yeah, listen, really, this wasn't my plan. I was actually planning on killing somebody else. And they said, who? It was uh, this guy who was walking on such and such block. So they looked at the cameras and identified the Jewish guy's face. So they got him into the, uh, into the uh, place. He said, you, you saw this guy? He was uh, following you? He goes, yeah, I saw him. So they asked the Palestinian, the terrorist, says, why didn't you kill him? Why didn't you kill him? He says, what can I do? I was waiting for his two big friends to leave. And they asked the guy, who'd you go with? Who else came with you? He goes, nobody. He goes, no, no. He just said, you had two big friends with you. He goes, I didn't have anybody with me. All I was doing was just reading Mishnayot. I was just reading Mishnah. The Palestinian says, no, he had two giant friends with him. Huge. Two guys. Two meters uh, tall. I was waiting for them to leave. They came out of nowhere. Only the goyim, only the goyim know how many times Hashem protected us because the amount of plans they have against us, unbelievable. Unbelievable. So here, Abutai will finish this last part of this first thing. The other reason why this pestilence comes is because of illegal use of the fruits of the sabbatical year during the Shemitah. The Shemitah is the last year of every seven-year cycle where people that are in the farming business and so on have to, in Israel, have to renounce ownership of whatever grows during that year. And anyone is permitted to enter the field and take the produce for themselves. But everything has to be used as food. And it cannot be used for commerce, meaning you can't sell it. So the Yosher says that what's the whole, what's the one of the tamim, one of the the, uh, the uh, ingredients that uh, of this mitzvah that we can understand, that rationalize it. So the Yosher says the Shemitah is a year when a man is forced to realize that earth and everything that it contains belongs to God. If you're going to continue working on the seventh year, that means that you think you need the money. That means that you think that you're making the money. That's a problem. If you think you're the one that's making the money, you think you're the one that's running the land, you think that your grains and your this and your this is is producing everything, that means you don't realize who the boss really is. So the Shemitah, one of the main principles of it is the fact that it reminds us that Hashem is running the show. Now, there are certain rules of the Mishnah, of the, uh, of the Shemitah, that show proofs that the Torah is divine. One of them is that a person can keep food that he has from this uh, thing at home for his own animals only, as long as there's food available in the field for ownerless beasts. And once there's no food left in a field, 
a person has to make his own food available for these for people and for these animals in so many words these not these animal rights activists that think that uh, the Torah is cruel because we slaughter animals and we eat them should actually learn some Torah because this is by far one of the greatest things in the world for the right of animals that ever existed if not the most great simply because Hashem actually worries about them even eating even if they're not owned by us now feeding your own dog feeding your own cow technically you have your own interest to protect if it's because the dog works for you or because you simply like him if it's because the cow you know it's something you uh, you know benefit from the milk or eventually from the meat so if it's a domestic animal Feeding it doesn't really show greatness. It just shows you have interest. You're protecting your own interest. But the Shemitah says that the food that you, from the Shemitah, from the seventh year, you must have, if you're going to have some stored, whatever you store, you have to make sure it also, there is some in the fields. For who? For these animals that don't have owners, that are not domestic animals. That if this lion appears, he has food over there to eat. If this dog appears that doesn't have an owner, it's not your dog, just appears in your land, there's the same food that you have in your house, he has. And as soon as you run out of it in the field, you have to take it out of your house during the Shemitah year. To what? To feed these stray animals. These animals that are are not owned by anyone. Meaning you have to contribute. To things that you have technically no benefit from whatsoever and if you actually think rationally you're probably gonna lose out out of it why you feed these uh, lions you feed these uh, rabbits you feed these different beasts and animals that are owned by no one what's gonna happen they're gonna come back all the time but they can only come back during the Shemitah year what if they come back during the year where it's actually your land again that means they're gonna eat your food so here is Mama showing full emunah that Hashem runs the world. That you're going to feed them now, and they're not going to come back later. And if they do, that's also Ritzon Hashem. That's also the will of Hashem. So this shows that the Torah and its, its laws had to be given by, 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 by Hashem. Because no human in his right mind would ever write such a law. Go give a bunch of food to animals that no one owns. If you're going to say, go give food to your animals, okay, I understand it. Why? It's your animal. You feed it for your own interest. If it says give uh, give food to your neighbor's animal, okay, I can also understand that being nice to your neighbor, being kind to your neighbor, and so on. But you're saying go give food to an ownerless animal that most likely your rationale will tell you that if you were there instead of the food, it probably eat you too. It's not your friend. It's an animal. It's some animal that's there. It's not like today where there's really no animals. So, this is against human logic. And that's what Shlomo Melech was telling us with the Parah Duma, by the way. The question that you asked before is that the Parah Duma, the red heifer is beyond me, is that technically the, the deep roots of the Torah, it's against human logic. It doesn't make sense. But that's the point. It came from God. It's not supposed to necessarily make sense. There are things that make sense, but that's not the reason why we do them. We don't fulfill the mitzvot or listen to what Hashem says because it makes sense to us. We do it, we fulfill it because Hashem said so. That's the real reason. So during the Shemitah, 
when no one harvests, there is no ma'asel, there's no tithes available to the Levites or the poor because it's a Shemitah year, meaning that their only possible source of food to these poor people and to these Levites is what you're going to leave in the fields on the seventh year. Which means that the owner of this field who cuts off the supply, meaning he doesn't feel like giving it to them, he wants to keep it for himself, or he sells it, is actually responsible, literally responsible for allowing these people to die of hunger. Because they're not going to get the food from anywhere else. And that's why he deserves the death penalty, measure for measure. The Tiferet Israel explains that the retribution for not making his field free for the poor and to take at will, because of that, Hashem gives the, the Malach HaMavet the free reign to take his life. You didn't give something for free that Hashem gave you for free. Hashem will make it free, free uh, field, free uh, uh, reign uh, for the Malach HaMavet over your life, Hashem Hashem. And then last but not least, the Maharam Sheikh says that withholding the fruits of the Shemitah from the poor, it's a flaw in emunah. It's a flaw in faith. Why? Because if a person understood, truly understood, what the Gemara in Masechet Ta'anit, page 8b says, which is that he who gives life also gives sustenance, also gives you your parnasah, he would never fear from any personal loss from fulfilling any of the mitzvot. If you really truly understood and believed, not only understood but believed, that Hashem provides you all of your money, you would have no problem not working on Shabbat. You would have no problem following the laws of the Shemitah. You would have no problem doing any mitzvah. As a matter of fact, you would have no problem with anything at all. If you really had emunah. But why do we have problems? Because we have no emunah. So that's why, because we have no emunah, we work on Shabbat. Because we have no emunah, we overcharge the client. Because we have no emunah, we do, you know, unethical dealings. We keep trying to cut corners, kombina. The kombina, the Israeli kombina. Make a few here, a few there, a few here, a few there. Eventually I'll retire, I won't have to do it. Then I can learn Torah like Abishim Bar Yochai. All these stupid excuses that we have in, in, infiltrated in our head, parked in our head, thinking that we can fool the system. And that's why the Gemara Masechet Shabbat says that Yetzirah, he takes you from here, and you say yes. He takes you to there, you say yes. He takes you to here, take yes, yes, yes. Eventually you keep saying yes enough times, he'll take you to Avodah Zarah, and you also say yes. That's Satan, that's Malach HaMavet, that's Yetzirah. So, the issue with Shemitah is that it's an extraordinary emuna test. If you have emunah, you have no problem with this mitzvah, and you also have no problem with any mitzvah. If you have no emunah, you'll have a problem with this mitzvah, and you'll have a problem with every mitzvah. And that's why the punishment is so severe. Because you not having emunah carries huge amount of weights to the world around you. It causes you to sin in many, many different aspects. In your living, in your praying, in your marriage, in the way you deal with employees, with vendors, in everything. No emunah 
Hashem is telling you it's not just, oh, he has a munah, chazaku ba'uch, he doesn't have a munah, oh, hopefully one day he will. No! No emunah in so many words, he's saying you're already dead. You're already dead. It's just you're suffering 24 hours a day. When a person has no emunah, he's suffering all the time. He's constantly thinking, when am I going to get a job? When am I going to get a wife? When am I going to get a new car? When am I going to get this? When am I going to get this? Hey, take it easy. The same God that gave you eyes and ears and nose and mouth and lips, He also runs the rest of the world. When it's time for you to have a wife, you'll have a wife. When it's time for you to have a job, you'll have a job. You just worry about what you can do. What can you do now? You can do tefillin, do tefillin. You can keep Shabbat, keep Shabbat. You can stay out of crime, stay out of crime. Whatever you have, to, whatever you can do, do that. That's what you're obligated to do. The rest of it, it's not your business. When you're going to get married, when you're going to get a better job, when you're going to get a raise, when you're going to get this, when you're going to get that. All those other things are not your business. It's not your business if you're going to make all the money back on the eighth year after the Shemitah. It's not your business. Your business is fulfilling the mitzvah of the Shemitah. That's your business. The most important mitzvah is the mitzvah of right now. Which one is it? Whatever you have available to you right now. Shabbat's right now, that's the biggest mitzvah. Tzedakah is right now, Tzedakah is the number one mitzvah. Tfilin, Tfilin is the number one mitzvah. That's the most important mitzvah. That's the rule. You worrying about things that gonna, you know, haven't happened yet, you're worrying about some, somebody else's business. It's like your company's collapsing, declaring chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 13, every form of bankruptcy known to man, but you're worrying about your buddy's uh, business. Ah, yeah, you know what? I think you should start a new marketing uh, division. Hey, buddy, why don't you worry about your company? You're forming every, uh, you have a division of bankruptcy. Worry about your bankruptcy and don't worry about my, uh, my marketing. Worry about the mitzvot you can do, the learning that you need to do, the mitzvot that you have to do. Don't worry about when Hashem is going to give you all the gifts of a marriage and a wife and a husband and the children, and the money, and the ganeden, and they all, don't worry about those things. Worry about what you have to, worry about your job. That's the whole story. So Rabutai, this is just the first part of all of these. So obviously it's already run out of time. But it shows how deep this stuff really goes. It shows how deep this stuff really goes. Right now it's a minag, and most pateknesset, to read Pirkei Avot every Shabbat until Shavuot. Honestly, it breaks my heart when I hear it. I hear people read it during Shabbat, and I just breeze through it like it's like, I don't know, it's like gas. Excuse the expression. They just go through it like it's just like it just, yeah, let's just get through it. They go through the entire chapter in like four seconds. It's like they pick the fastest reader around, and we just go through it. Oh, no one knows anything. And even if you understand and you follow along, you still don't have enough time to understand what they actually mean. Look how we've talked already for what? Two, three hours? This is about one sentence inside one Mishnah. One sentence. And we can really go longer if you want. If I see you guys are tired. It's midnight. The point is, Abutai... You have to understand, okay, the minagim we have as a nation, it's good, you keep them, you do them, but don't think that's really limud. 
Don't think that's really learning. You're not learning anything. You're just fulfilling the minag avotenu. But in reality, avotenu didn't study like that either, though. It's very deep. The Torah is very deep. You have to go in. You have to dig deeper. That's the only way we're going to do tshuva. But if you keep breezing, we keep breezing, disaster will continue happening around us. Hashem Elohim, every five minutes, every five minutes we have a new person being added to the list of the refuash lema in our Tehilim group. Literally, every day I said, I said, oh, add this one, add this one, add this one, add this one. Every day, somebody new with cancer, with stabbing, with uh, the drugs, with every day. Disasters don't, don't stop. Matter of fact, they don't even slow down. It seems like they're speeding up. It all has to do with us. It's our fault. It's our fault. Don't think, oh, it's his fault. He was a drug addict. It was our fault because he mechalel Shabbat. It's his fault because he didn't learn. No, no. It's our fault. Us, us, the person you see in the mirror. Why? If we learn enough Torah, we can change the entire world. If we learn enough Torah, you can change the entire world. That's what this Mishnah is trying to tell you. Your simple prayer is not so simple. Your learning one shiur is not so simple. Your one verse in the Torah, Parashat Shavua, is not so simple if you actually understood the significance of what happens in the other worlds above us. When you just learn Parashat Shavua, you have to, Shukhan Aruch says, You have to read the Parashat Shavua twice and once with commentary, meaning three times. If you understand what happens in Shemaim and the angels that get affected, I'm not going to get into it, it's Kabbalistic and it's beyond the scope of this class, but if you simply understood what happens in the other worlds and the angels and the things that are created as a result of what? You should read Parashat Shavua. We're not talking about you went to Mount Sinai as an expedition to see where was Moshe. No, no, I'm talking about, hey, what you did? You read Parashat Shavua in the comfort of your home with the AC at 70 degrees and your wife giving you coffee every few hours and the kids are there. Parashat Shavua. Parashat Shavua, the weekly Torah portion, creates worlds. No Parashat Shavua. The stabbing, the, the, the terrorists, the cancers, all of those things, Rabotai, that the Mishnah is telling us, we have our hands. We have some blood on our hands. That's what we have to do tshuva for. It's not just our sins that we have to do for ourselves, but also for Am Yisrael. Also for Am Yisrael. So Bezat Hashem, this will give us enough chizuk to wake up a little bit more. We're back on a Musar series, Baruch Hashem. We have another lecture tomorrow around the neighborhood here. Uh, we'll go to the, uh, hopefully another part of the same Mishnah of uh, talking about war and uh, delay of justice, perversion of justice and other very, very interesting things, Be'ezrat Hashem.